Book Three, Chapters Two and Three of the Fatal Three by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, The Rift in the Lute. The villa was built on a ledge of ground between the road and the sea. There was a stone terrace in front of the windows of salon and dining room, below which the ground shelved steeply down to the rocks and the blue water. The low, irregular-shaped house was screened from the road by a grove of orange and lemon trees, with a peach or a cherry here and there to give variety of color. In one corner there was a whole cluster of peach trees, which made a mass of purplish-pinky bloom. The ridges of garden sloping down from the stone terrace were full of white stalks and scarlet anemones. Clusters of red ranunculus made spots of flame in the sun, and the young leaves in the long hedge of Dijon roses wove an interlacing screen of crimson, through which the sun shone as through old ruby glass in a cathedral window. Everywhere there was a feast of perfume and color and beauty. The little bay, the curving pier, the white-sailed boats, which, seen from the height above, looked no bigger than the gulls skimming across the blue, the quaint old houses of Villefranche on a level with the water, and rising tier above tier to the crest of the hill, pink and blue houses, white and cream-colored houses, with pea-green shutters and red roofs. Far away to the left, the jutting promontory and the tall white lighthouse, and away southward, the sapphire sea, touched with every changing light and shadow. And this lovely little world at George Ransom's feet, this paradise in miniature, was all the lovelier because of the great rugged mountain wall behind it, the bare red and yellow hills baked in the sunlight of ages the strange old-world villages yonder high up on the stony flanks of the hills, the faraway church towers, from which faint sound of bells came now and again as if from fairyland. It was a delicious spot, this little village of Saint-Jean, to which the Niçois came on Sundays and holidays to eat bouillabaisse at the rustic tavern, or to picnic in the shade of century-old olives and old caruba trees, which made dark masses of foliage between the road and the sea. George Ransom loved the place, and could have been happy there if his wife would only have allowed him. But those halcyon days which marked the beginning of their retirement was too soon ended, and clouds lowered again over the horizon, clouds of doubt and discontent. There are women to whom the domestic peace, a calm and rational happiness, is an impossibility, and Vivian was one of these women. From the beginning her suspicious nature had been on the watch for some hidden evil, she had a fixed idea that the fates had marked her for misery, and she would not open her heart to the sunlight of happiness. Was her husband unkind to her? No, he was all kindness. But to her his kindness seemed only a gentlemanlike form of toleration. He had married her out of pity, and it was pity that made him kind. Other women were worshipped. It was her fate to be tolerated by a man she adored. She could never forget her own passionate folly her own unwomanly forwardness. She had thrown herself into his arms, she who should have waited to be wooed, and should have made herself precious by the difficulty with which she was won. How can he help holding me cheap? she asked herself. I who cost him nothing, not even an hour of doubt. From the hour we first met he must have known that I adored him. Once, when he was rowing her about the bay in the western sunlight, while the fishermen were laying down their lines, or taking up their baskets here and there by the rocks, she asked him suddenly, "'What did you think of me, George, the first time you saw me, that night at Signora Vicenzi's party? Come, be candid. You can afford to tell me the truth now. Your fate is sealed. You have nothing to lose or to gain.' "'Do you think I would tell you less or more than the truth under any circumstances, Viva?' he asked gravely. Oh, you are horribly exact, I know, 
she answered with an impatient movement of her slender sloping shoulders not looking at him but with her dark dreamy eyes gazing far across the bay towards the distant point where the twin towers of monaco cathedral showed faint in the distance but perhaps if the truth sounded very rude you might suppress it out of pity i don't think the truth need sound rude well still more impatiently what impression did i make upon you you must consider that there were at least fifty young ladies in signora vicenti's salons that evening and about thirty old women and i was lost in the crowd not quite lost i remember being attracted by a young lady who sat in a window niche apart like brunswick fated chieftain pray go on and who seemed a little out of harmony with the rest of the company her manner struck me as unpleasantly ironical but her small face interested me and i even liked the mass of tousled hair brushed up from her low square forehead i liked her black velvet gown without any colour or ornament it set off the thin white shoulders and long slender throat did you think i was rich or poor somebody or nobody i thought you were a clever girl soured by some kind of disappointment and you felt sorry for me say you felt sorry for me she cried her eyes coming back from the distant promontory and fixing him suddenly bright keen imperious in their eager questioning yes i confess to feeling very sorry for you did i not know as much from the very first you pitied me pity pity what an intolerable burden it is i have bent under it all my life my dear viva what nonsense you talk because i had mistaken ideas about you that first night when we were strangers you were not mistaken i was soured i had been disappointed my thoughts were bitter as gall i had no patience with other girls who had so many blessings that i had never known i saw them making light of their advantages peevish ill-tempered self-indulgent and i scorned them contempt for others was the only comfort of my barren life and so my vinegar tongue disgusted you did it not i was not disgusted concerned and interested rather your conversation was original i wanted to know more of you did you think me pretty i was more impressed by your mental gifts than your physical that is only a polite way of saying you thought me plain viva you know better than that if i thought of your appearance at all during that first evening be assured i thought you interesting yes and pretty only prettiness is a poor word to express a face that is full of intellect and originality you thought me pale faded haggard old for my age she said decisively don't deny it you must have seen what my glass had been telling me for the last year i thought your face showed traces of suffering this was one of many such conversations full of keen questioning on her part with an assumed lightness of manner which thinly veiled the irritability of her mind she had changed for the worse since they left nice she had grown more sensitive more suspicious more irritable she was in a condition of health in which many women are despondent or irritable in which with some women life seems one long disgust and all things are irksome even the things that have been pleasantest and most valued before even the aspect of a lovely landscape the phrases of a familiar melody the perfume of a once favorite flower he tried to cheer her by talking of their future the time to come when there would be a new bond between them a new interest in their lives but she saw all things in a gloomy atmosphere who knows she said i may die perhaps or you may love your child better than you have ever loved me and then i should hate it viva 
you cannot doubt that my love for our child will strengthen my love for you will it she asked incredulously god knows it needs strengthening this was hard upon a man whose tenderness and indulgence had been boundless who had done all that chivalry and a sense of duty can do to atone for the lack of love he had tried his uttermost to conceal the one bitter truth that love was wanting but those keen eyes of hers had seen the gap between them that sensitive ear had discovered the rift in the lute one afternoon they climbed the hill to the breezy common on which the lighthouse stands and dawdled about in the sunshine gathering the pale grey rosemary bloom and the perfumed thyme which grew among those hollows and hillocks in such wild luxuriance they were sauntering near the carriage road talking very little she feeble and tired although it was her own fancy to have walked so far when they saw a carriage driving towards them a large landau with the usual bony horses and shabby jingling harness and the usual sunburnt good-tempered driver two girls in white gowns and leghorn hats were in the carriage with an elderly woman in black their laps were full of wild flowers and branches of wild cherry and pear blossom filled the leather hood at the back of the carriage they were talking and laughing gaily all animation and high spirits as they drew near and at sight of george ransom one of them waved her hand in greeting and called to the driver to stop they were two handsome irish girls who had made a sensation at the battle of flowers six weeks before they were spoken of by some people as the bells of nice mr ransom had pelted them with parma violets and yellow rosebuds on the promenade des anglais as they drove up and down in a victoria embowered with white stalks and narcissi he had waltzed with them at the cercle de la Méditerranée and the palais montano had admired them frankly and openly not afraid to own even to a jealous wife that he thought them beautiful delia darcy the elder and handsomer of the two leaned over the carriage door to shake hands with him while vivian stood aloof on a grassy knoll above the road looking daggers what right had they to stop their carriage and waylay her husband who would have thought of finding you in this out-of-the-way spot exclaimed miss darcy we fancied you had left the riviera are you stopping at monte carlo no i have taken a villa at st jean is that near here very near you must have skirted the village in driving up here and has nice been very gay since we left no people have been going away and we have missed you dreadfully at the opera and at dances and at rumpelmeyer's what could have induced you to bury yourself alive in a village she asked vivaciously with that sparkling manner which gives an air of flirtation to the most commonplace talk my wife has been out of health and it has suited us both to live quietly poor mrs ransom poor you exclaimed miss darcy with a sigh oh there she is how do you do mrs ransom gesticulating with a pretty little hand in a long wrinkled tan glove do come and talk to us mrs ransom bowed stiffly but did not move an inch she stood picking a branch of rosemary to shreds with nervous restless fingers scattering the poor pale blue-gray blossoms as if she were sprinkling them upon a corpse the two girls took no further notice of her but both bent forward talking to ransom rattling on about this ball and the other ball and a breakfast and sundry afternoon teas and the goings-on audacious for the most part of all the smart people at nice they had worlds to tell him having taken it into their heads that he was a humorist a cynic who delighted in hearing of the follies of his fellow-man he stood with his hat off waiting for the carriage to drive on inwardly impatient of delay knowing with what jealous feelings vivian had always regarded delia darcy dreading a fit of ill-temper when the irish girl should have vanished by and by below the sandy edge of the common 
he listened almost in silence, giving their loquacity no more encouragement than good manners obliged. "'Why don't you come to the next dance at the Cercle de la Méditerranée?' said Delia coaxingly. "'There are so few good dancers left, and your step is just the one that suits me best. There are to be amateur theatricals to begin with, scenes from Machado, and I am to be Beatrice. Won't that tempt you?' she asked, with the insolence of an acknowledged beauty, spoiled by the laxer manners of a foreign settlement, lolling back in the carriage, and smiling at him with brilliant Irish-grey eyes, under the shadow of her leghorn hat, with a great cluster of daffodils just above her forehead, the yellow bloom showing vividly against her dark hair. The other sister was only a paler reflection of this one, and echoed her speeches, laughing when she laughed. "'Surely you will come to see Delia act Beatrice,' she said. I can't tell you how well she does it. Sir Randall Spofforth is the Benedict. My dears, we shall have no time to dress for dinner, expostulated the duenna, feeling that this kind of thing had lasted long enough. En avant, coucher. Won't you come? pleaded the pertinacious Delia. It is on the twenty-ninth, remember, next Thursday week. The carriage rolled slowly onward. I regret that I shall not be there, said Ransom decisively. Delia shook her parasol at him in pretended anger. He rejoined his wife. She stood surrounded by the shreds of rosemary and thyme which she had plucked and scattered while he was talking. She was very pale, and he knew only too well that she was very angry. "'Come, Viva, it is time we turned homeward,' he said. "'Yes, the sun has gone down, has it not?' she exclaimed mockingly as she looked after the carriage which sank below the ragged edge of heather and thyme yonder as if it had dropped over the cliff why my love the sun is above our heads is it your sun has gone down anyhow she is very lovely is she not the question was asked with sudden eagerness as if her life depended upon the reply she was walking quickly in her agitation going down the hill much faster than she had mounted it "'Yes, they are both handsome girls, feather-headed, but remarkably handsome,' her husband answered carelessly. "'But Delia is the lovelier. She is your divinity.' "'Yes, she is the lovelier. The other seems a copy by an inferior hand. "'And she is so fond of you. It was cruel to refuse her request when she pleaded so hard. "'How can you be so foolish or so petty, Vivian? Is it impossible for me to talk for five minutes with a handsome girl without unreasonable anger on your part?' Do you expect me to be pleased or happy when I see your admiration of another woman? Admiration you do not even take the trouble to conceal? Do you suppose I can ever forget last winter? How I have seen you dancing with that girl night after night? Yes, I have had to sit and watch you. I was not popular, I had few partners. And it is bad form to dance more than once with one's husband. I have seen her in your arms with her head almost lying on your shoulder again and again as if it were her natural place. What a handsome couple, I have heard people say. Are they engaged? Do you think that was pleasant for me? You had but to say one word, and I would have left off dancing forever. Another sacrifice, like your marriage. Vivian, you would provoke a saint. Yes, it is provoking to be chained to one woman when you are dying for another. How much oftener am I to swear to you that I don't care a straw for Miss Darcy? Never again, she answered. I love you too well to wish you to swear a lie. They had come down from the common by this time and were now upon a pathway nearer home, a narrow footpath on the edge of the cliff opposite Beaulieu, the gently curving bay below them and behind and above them orchards and gardens, hill and lighthouse. It was one of their chosen walks. 
They had paced the narrow path many an afternoon when the twin towers of Monaco showed dark in the shadow of sundown. Vivian, I think you are the most difficult creature to live with that ever a man had for his wife, said Ransom, stung to the quick by her persistent perversity. I am difficult to live with, am I? she cried. Why don't you go a step further? Why don't you say at once that you wish I were dead? she cried with a wild burst of passion. Say that you wish me dead. I own that when you torment me as you are doing today, I have sometimes thought of death. Yours or mine, as the only escape from mutual misery, he answered gloomily. He had been sauntering a few paces in front of her along the narrow path between the olive garden and the edge of the cliff, she following slowly, both in a desultory way and talking to each other without seeing each other's face. The cliff sank sheer below the pathway, with only a narrow margin of rushy grass between the footpath and the brink of the precipice. It was no stupendous depth, no giddy height from which the eye glanced downward, sickening at the horror of the gulf. One looked down at the jewel-bright waves and the many-hued rocks, the fir-trees growing out of the crags without a thought of danger, and yet a false step upon those sunburnt rushes might mean instant death. He came to a sudden standstill after that last speech, and stood leaning with both hands upon his stick, angry, full of gloom, feeling that he had said a cruel thing, yet not repenting of his cruelty. He stood there expectant of her angry answer, but there was only silence. Silence, and then a swift rushing sound like the flight of a great bird. He looked round, and saw that he was alone. CHAPTER Three, DARKNESS She had flung herself over the cliff. That rustling noise was the sound of her gown as it brushed against the rushes and seedling firs that clothed the precipice with verdure. He looked over the cliff and saw her lying among the rocks, a white, motionless figure, mangled and crushed, dumb and dead, his victim and his accuser. His first impulse was to fling himself over the edge where she had cast away her life a minute ago. But common sense overcame that movement of despair. A few yards further towards the point, the side of the cliff was less precipitous. There were jutting ledges of rock and straggling bushes by which a good climber might let himself down to the beach, not without hazard, but with a fair chance of safety. As he scrambled downward, he saw a fisherman's boat shooting across the bay, and he thought that his wife's fall had been seen from the narrow strip of sandy shore yonder towards Beaulieu. She was lying on her side among the low, wet slabs of rock, the blue water lapping round her. There was blood upon her face, and on one mangled arm from which the muslin sleeve was ripped. Her gown had caught in the bushes and was torn to shreds, and the water flowing so gently in and out among her loosened hair was tinged with blood. Her eyes were wide open, staring wildly, and they had a glassy look already. He knew that she was dead. "'Did you see her fall?' he asked the men in the boat as they came near. "'No,' said one. "'I heard the gulls scream, and I knew there was something, "'and then I looked about and saw something white lying there under the cliff.' "'They lifted her gently into the boat "'and laid her on a folded sail at the bottom, "'as gently and as tenderly as if she were still capable of feeling, "'as if she were not past cure. "'George Ransom asked no question, invited no opinion. "'He sat in the stern of the boat, dumb and quiet. "'The horror of this sudden doom had paralyzed him.' What had he done that this thing should happen, this wild revenge of a woman's passionate heart which made him a murderer? What had he done? 
had he not been patient and forbearing, indulgent beyond the common indulgence of husbands to fretful wives? Had he not blunted the edge of wrath with soft answers? Had he not been affectionate and considerate even when love was dead? And yet, because of one hard speech wrung from his irritated nerves, this wild creature had slain herself. The two fishermen looked at him curiously. He saw the dark southern eyes watching him, saw gravity and restraint upon those fine olive faces which had been wont to beam with friendly smiles. He knew that they suspected evil, but he was in no mood to undeceive them. He sat in an apathetic silence, motionless, stupefied almost, while the men rowed slowly round the point in the golden light of sundown. He scarcely looked at that white still figure lying at the bottom of the boat, the face hidden under a scarlet kerchief which one of the men had taken from his neck. He sat staring at the rocky shore, the white gleaming lighthouse, the long ridge of heathy ground on the crest of the hill, the villas, the gardens with their glow of light and colour, the dark masses of foliage clustering here and there amidst the bright-hued rocks. He looked at everything except his dead wife, lying almost at his feet. There was an inquiry that evening before the juge d'instruction at Villefranche, and he was made to give an account of his wife's death. He proved a very bad witness. The minute and seemingly frivolous questions addled his brain. He told the magistrate how he had looked round and found the path empty. But he could not say how his wife had fallen, whether she had flung herself over the edge or had fallen accidentally, whether her foot had slipped unawares, whether she had fallen face forward, or whether she had dropped backwards from the edge of the cliff. I tell you again that I did not see her fall, he protested impatiently. Did you usually walk in advance of your wife? asked the Frenchman. It was not very polite to turn your back upon a lady. I was worried and out of temper. For what reason? My wife's unhappy jealousy created reasons where there were none. The people who know me know that I was not habitually unkind to her. Yet you gave her an answer which so maddened her that she flung herself over the cliff in despair. I fear that it was so, he answered, with the deepest distress depicted in his haggard face. She was in a nervous and irritable condition. I had always borne that fact in mind until that moment. She stung me past endurance by her groundless jealousies. I had been a true and loyal husband to her from the hour of our marriage. I have never wronged her by so much as a thought, and yet I could not talk to a pretty peasant girl or confess my admiration for any woman I met in society without causing an outbreak of temper that was almost madness. I bore with her long and patiently. I remembered that the circumstances of her childhood and youth had been adverse, that her nature had been warped and perverted. I forgave all faults of temper in a wife who loved me. But this afternoon, almost for the first time since our marriage, I spoke unkindly, cruelly perhaps. I have no wish to avoid interrogation or to conceal any portion of the truth. You did not push her over the cliff? I did not. Do I look like a murderer or bear the character of a man likely to commit murder? The examination went on, with cruel reiteration of almost the same questions. The juge d'instruction was a hard-headed legal machine who believed that the truth might be wrung out of any criminal by persistent questioning. He suspected Ransom, or deemed it his duty to suspect him, and he ordered him to be arrested on leaving the court. So George Ransom passed the night after his wife's death in the lock-up at Villefranche. What a night that was for a man to live through! He sat on a stone bench, listening to the level plish-plash of that tideless sea ever so far beneath him, 
he heard the footsteps going up and down the steep stony street of that wonderful old seaport he heard the scream of the gulls and the striking of the clock on the crest of the hill as he sat motionless with his elbows on his knees and his head in his hands brooding over that swift sudden horror of yesterday could it have been an accident did she step backwards unawares and slip over the edge no he remembered where she was standing when he last looked at her some distance from the side of the cliff standing among the heather and wild thyme which grew down to the edge of the little path she must have made a rapid rush to the brink after that fatal speech of his she had flung her life away in a single impulse of blind mad anger or despair she had not paused for an instant to take thought alas he knew her so well he had so often seen those sudden gusts of passion the rush of crimson to the pale small face the quivering lips striving impotently for speech the fury in the dark eyes and the small nervous hands clenched convulsively he had seen her struggle with the demon of anger and had seen the storm pass swifter than a tempest-driven cloud across the moon another moment and she would burst into tears fling her arms round his neck and implore him to forgive her i love you too well ever to know happiness she said that was her favourite apology it is only people without passions who can be happy she told him once i sometimes think that you belong to that family and she was dead she whose undisciplined love had so plagued and tried him she was dead and he felt himself her murderer alas doubly a murderer since she had perished just at that time when her life should have been the most precious to him when he should have made any sacrifice to secure her peace he who had seen all the evils of her fretful temper exhibited in her character had yet been weak enough to yield to a moment of anger and to insult the woman whom he ought to have cherished a long familiar line of byron's haunted his brain all through the night and mixed itself with that sound of footsteps on the street of stairs and the scream of the gulls and the flapping of the waves against the stone quay she died but not alone she who was to have been the mother of his first-born child was lying dead in the white-walled villa where they had once been happy hush in the soft clear light of an april morning he heard the tolling of the church bell solemn slow measured at agonizing intervals which left an age of expectancy between the heavy strokes of the clapper vivos voco mortuos plango they bury their dead at daybreak in that fair land of orange and lemon groves in the early morning of the first day after death the hastily fashioned coffin was carried out into the sunshine and the funeral procession wound slowly up the hill towards the graveyard near the church of villefranche george ransom knew how brief is the interval between death and burial on that southern shore and he had little doubt that the bell was tolling for her whose heart was beating passionately when the sun began to sink so soon her grave would be filled in and trodden down before they let him out of prison it had never seemed to him that he was to stay long in captivity or that there would be any difficulty in proving his innocence of any part in the catastrophe except that fatal part of having upset the balance of a weak mind and provoked a passionate woman to suicide as for the confinement of the past night he had scarcely thought about it he had a curious semi-consciousness of time and place which was a new experience to him he found himself forgetting where he was and what had happened there were strange gaps in his mind intervals of oblivion 
and then there were periods in which he sat looking at the slanting shaft of sunlight between the window and the ground, and trying to count the motes that danced in that golden haze. The day passed strangely, too, sometimes at railroad pace, sometimes with a ghastly slowness. Then came a night in which sleep never visited his eyelids, a night of bodily and mental restlessness, the greater part of which he spent in futile efforts to open the heavily bolted door or to drag the window bars from their stone sockets. His prison was a relic of the Middle Ages, and Hercules himself could not have got out of it. In all those endeavors he was actuated by a blind impulse, a feverish desire to be at large again. Not once during that night did he think of his dead wife in her new-made grave on the side of the hill. He had forgotten why they had shut him up in that stony chamber, or rather had imagined another reason for his imprisonment. He was a political offender, had been deeply concerned in a plot to overthrow Victor Emmanuel and to create a republic for Italy. He himself was to be president of that republic. He felt all the power to rule and legislate for a great nation. He compared himself with Solon and with Pericles, to the disadvantage of both. There was a greatness in him which neither of those had ever attained. I should rule them as God himself, he thought. It would be a golden age of truth and justice, a millennium of peace and plenty. And while the nations are waiting for me, I am shut up here by the treachery of France. Next morning he was taken before the juge d'instruction for the second time. The two fishermen who picked up his wife's corpse were present as witnesses. Also his wife's maid and the three other servants, also his wife's doctor. He was again questioned severely, but this time nothing could induce him to give a direct answer to any question. He raved about the Italian Republic of which he was to be chief. He told the French magistrate that France had conspired with the Italian tyrant to imprison and suppress him. Every other pretense is a subterfuge, he said. My popularity in Italy is at the root of this monstrous charge. There will be a rising of the whole nation if you do not instantly release me. For your own sake, sir, I warn you to be prompt. This man is pretending to be mad, said the magistrate. I fear there is more reality than pretense about the business, said the doctor. He took Ransom to the window and looked at his eyes in the strong white light of noon. Then he went over to the magistrate and they whispered together for some minutes, while the prisoner sat staring at the floor and muttering to himself. After that there came a long, dark interval in George Ransom's life. A waking dream of intolerable length, but not unalloyed misery. For the hallucinations which made his madness buoyed him up and sustained him during some part of that dark period. He talked with princes and statesmen. He was not alone in the madhouse chamber, or in the madhouse garden, or in that great iron cage where even the most desperate maniacs were allowed to disport themselves in the air and the sunlight as in a gymnasium. He was surrounded by invisible friends and flatterers, by public functionaries who quailed before his glance and were eager to obey his commands. Sometimes he wrote letters and telegrams all day long upon any scraps of paper which his keepers would give him. Sometimes he passed whole days in a dreamy silence with arms folded and abstracted gaze fixed on the distant hilltops, like Napoleon at St. Helena, brooding over the future of nations. By and by there came a period of improvement, or what was called improvement by the doctors, but which to the patient seemed a time of strange blankness and disappointment. All those busy shadows which had peopled his life, his senators and flatterers, had abandoned him. He was alone in that strange place amidst a strange people, 
most of whom seemed to be somewhat wrong in their heads. He was able to read the newspapers now, and was vexed to find that his speeches were unreported, his letters and manifestos unpublished, disappointed to find that Victor Emmanuel was still king of Italy, and the new republic still a web of dreams. His temper was very fitful at this time, and he had intervals of violence. One morning he found himself upon the hills, digging with half a dozen other men, young and old, dressed pretty much like himself. It was in the early summer morning, before the sun had made the world too hot for labor. It was rapture to him to be there, digging and running about on the dewy hillside, in an amphitheater of mountains high above the stony bed of the Paillon. The air was full of sweet odors, orange and lemon bloom, roses and lilies from the gardens and orchards below. He felt that earth and sky were rapturously lovely, that life was a blessing and a privilege beyond all words. He had not the consciousness of a single care, or even a troubled memory. His quarrel with his father, his self-imposed exile, his marriage and its bitter disillusions, his wife's tragical fate, all were forgotten. He felt as a sylph might feel, a creature without earthly obligations, reveling in the glory of nature. This new phase of being lasted so long as the hills and the sky wore their aspect of novelty. It was succeeded by a period of deepest depression, a melancholy which weighed him down like a leaden burden. He sat in the madhouse garden apart from the rest, brooding over the darkness of life. He had no hopes, no desires. Gradually memory began to return. He asked why his wife did not come to see him. She used to be so fond of me, he said, foolishly fond of me, and now she deserts me. Then he talked of going home again. The image of his latest dwelling-place had gradually shaped itself in his mind. He saw the hedges of pale amber roses, the caruba trees, dark against the glittering blue of the sea, which shone through every opening in the branches like a background of lapis lazuli, and the rugged mountains rising above the low curving shore, steeply towards the sky, with patches of olive here and there on their stony flanks, but for the most part bare and barren, reddish-yellow, steeped in sunlight. Yes, he remembered every feature of that lovely and varied scene. The village of Isa yonder on the mountain road, a cluster of stony dwellings perched upon rocky foundations hardly to be distinguished from the rough crags upon which they were built, and higher still, in a cleft of those yellow hills, Turbia and its cloven towers, the birthplace of Roman emperors. How lovely it all was, and how pleasant it had been to lounge in his garden, where the light looked dazzling on beds of white gilly flowers, and where the blue summer sea smiled in the far distance with a faint purple cloud yonder on the horizon which represented Corsica. Why had he ever left that familiar home? Why could he not return to it? Get me a carriage, he said to one of the attendants. I want to go home immediately. My wife is waiting for me. It is not customary to make explanations to patients even in the best regulated asylums. Nobody answered him. Nobody explained anything to him he found himself confronted with a dogged silence. He wore himself out in an agony of impatience, like a bird beating itself to death against its bars. He languished in a miserable ignorance, piecing his past life together bit by bit, with a strange interweaving of fancies and realities, until, by slow degrees, the fancies dropped out of the web and left him face to face with the truth. At last the record of the past was complete. He knew that his wife was dead, and remembered how she had died. He knew that he had been a prisoner, first in jail, and then in a lunatic asylum. 
but he did not acknowledge to himself that he had been mad. He remembered the bell tolling in the saffron light of dawn. He remembered the magistrate's exasperating questions. He remembered everything. After this, he sank into a state of sullen despair, and silence and apathy were accepted as the indications of cure. He was told by the head physician that he could leave the institution whenever he pleased. There was an account against him as a private patient, which had been guaranteed by his landlord, who knew him to be a man of some means. His German manservant had been to the asylum many times to inquire about him. The doctor recommended him to travel, in Switzerland, until the end of the autumn, and to take his servant as his attendant and courier. "'Change of air and scene will be of inestimable advantage to you,' said the doctor, "'but it would not be wise for you to travel alone. "'What month is it? August the twenty-second. "'And my wife died early in April,' he said. "'Only a few months, and I feel as if I had been in this place a century.' He took the doctor's advice. He cared very little where he went or what became of him. Life and the world, his own individuality, and the beautiful earth around and about him were alike indifferent to him. He went back to the villa at Saint-Jean and to the garden he loved so well in the bright fresh springtime. All things had an overgrown and neglected look in the ripeness of expiring summer. Too many flowers, a rank luxuriance of large leaves and vivid blossoms, fruit rotting in the long grass, an odor of decaying oranges, the waste of the last harvest. He went up to the graveyard on the hill above the harbor. It was not a picturesque burial place. The cemetery at Simi was far more beautiful. The cemetery at Nice was in a grander position. He felt sorry that she should lie here amidst the graves of sailors and fishermen, as even if after death she were slighted and hardly used. He was summoned back to England early in the following year to his mother's deathbed. Neither she nor any of his family had known the miserable end of his married life. They knew only that he had married and had lost his wife after a year of marriage. Hazard had not brought anyone belonging to him in contact with any of those few people who knew the details of that tragical story. His mother's death made him rich and independent, but until the hour he met Mildred Fawcett, his life was a blank. End of chapters 2 and 3